Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. On this episode of the Catalyst Podcast, I'm going to talk all about how to build your Catalyst culture. This comes from core values and behavior that shapes our boundaries. And once we have our Catalyst culture, we are unstoppable. Culture is important. It is how we do what we do and why we do what we do. And it can be a great vaccination against burnout. In this episode, I go deep. We talk about the principles of a catalyst culture. And by the end, you'll have 12 principles to learn. So get a piece of paper. What resonates with you and what could you possibly fold into your day so that you can be your own catalyst? Enjoy and drop me a line. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode to build your own catalyst culture. We've all experienced culture, whether we know it or not. Remember being in fourth grade and visiting your friend after school and you just notice things differently, right? Everybody's house smells different. They have just have different patterns of interacting and they might even use chunky peanut butter. What? Who does that, right? It's their culture. It's how they do things. I remember learning about culture when I walked into my physics exam in 1994 at the University of Illinois. I was dehydrated, tired from studying all night, and I trekked into Loomis Hall. And for those that don't know what Loomis Hall looks like, it's a big circle, and it's divided in half, so it's two half circles or semicircles. Each lecture hall looks identical, right? But you go into one room, and you're in one side of the lecture hall. You go in the other, you're in the opposite side. Well, I wasn't paying attention, and I walked right in, sat down, and got out my pencils and my paper because, yes, this is before computers, and I noticed something without knowing, without putting my finger on it, it felt different. The hallway was quieter. It felt tense. I couldn't really understand why. Now, University of Illinois is big enough that you really don't recognize a lot of students because you'll have hundreds of them taking a final at the same time. So I looked around trying to find a few familiar faces, and I really couldn't understand. I analyzed everyone around me, and they dressed slightly differently. But they didn't look older, so it wasn't a graduate class. And I looked, and I couldn't quite see their notes. I wasn't even sure, was I in the right hall? So I leaned over and tried to capture the attention of somebody in front of me before the professor walked in. And I picked the one person that didn't have earplugs in. And I said, excuse me, what class is this? And this College co-ed just quickly said, uh, this is engineering 507 million. I don't even know what number it was. It was definitely advanced. At that point, I knew I was in the wrong room. I very hurriedly picked up my things and I left. I went right around into the other Loomis Hall lecture and immediately felt the difference. 
I was greeted by a culture of people that felt very similar to me. We're talking pre-med, lazily kind of sitting in their chairs, laughing, talking, certainly studious, certainly tense, but it wasn't as thick as it was in the other hall. They had Doc Martens on, they had flannel shirts. I felt like I had found my tribe again. And I confirmed that, yes, that was the right final. And I sat down and took the test. But this is an example of how culture can be unspoken. It's just how we do the things we do. But it's one of the critical ways that we can go off track. We can start following a culture that creeps and perhaps doesn't quite align. Culture is made from our core values that dictate our behavior. And then we can formalize it into a culture. And before you start thinking, well, this sounds very corporate-y, why would I do this in my own position? I'm an employed doctor or I'm my own clinic. I'm a medical entrepreneur. I don't need to worry about all this kind of corporate babble. It isn't corporate babble. It's essential. It's how you should live your life. And being a catalyst, somebody who is making tiny changes that have huge impact This is a golden opportunity to critically think about what kind of culture are you doing in your messaging. So in this episode, we're going to talk about four things. Burnout proofing with flow, autonomy protection, distraction limitation, and consistency so that you can build your own catalyst culture. Let's start with burnout proofing. As we know, burnout happens to everybody. It is not only certain industries. In fact, when we leave a job, it's usually due to culture that we don't like. We no longer align with them. And then we're seeking a job elsewhere and we're shocked that we get burned out there. The reason is we're not paying attention to our own flow cycle. And that is what leads to burnout, which is identified as depersonalization meaning you don't feel like anything that's happening has anything to do with you. You have low perceived achievement and emotional exhaustion. All of these things can be addressed by taking diligent care of flow mitigation. Flow cycle is four stages. And we talked about how when you're in flow, you're producing all five neurochemicals of happiness. So it feels really great. But to get there, you have to pass through two stages first. The first is struggle, where it feels like your skills are just enough for the task at hand, right? So think about things like sitting in an exam room with a patient, and they have a constellation of symptoms that are quite puzzling, but you're already sequencing the differential diagnosis in your head. You have an idea. You're immersed in what this could be. You're already thinking of the different tests that you would order. That's a version of flow. You could even get into flow playing Tetris or balancing your checkbook. Certainly not me, but those are also examples of flow. It takes a little bit of struggle though. And then you get that release, that epiphany that you're right there and all those ideas come into your brain. That's when you have found your flow and it feels great. You've got dopamine, you've got endorphins. It can be highly addicting which is why you can burn out at any job, even a job that you adore. You can burn out in flow. The reason people burn out is they forget about that fourth crucial stage of flow cycle, which is recovery. That is where you have your serotonin, your oxytonin. 
I'm sorry, your serotonin and oxytocin, and you're producing your delta waves. You are allowing your brain to rest. Think of a sponge. Think of flow, like squeezing out all the water in that sponge. And then when you let go, that sponge is dry. You need to let it soak up more energy for it to continue another revolution of a flow cycle. And that's what this recovery is all about. When you're in flow, you have this complete concentration, a merger of your action and awareness. It feels like time dilates. You have a loss of self. You feel very aligned with whatever mission you're supporting. And you have a sense of control, like you're the captain of the ship, or should we say the artist of the masterpiece? You're holding the brush in your hand. And it can feel addicting or autotelic is another phrase, which is why it's important to recognize this and put steps in to force yourself to recover so that you can sustain your flow and avoid burnout. When we're in flow, there's actually hypofrontality. In other words, the blood is actually shunted from the front of our brain because our brain is conserving energy. It is completely optimized and organized. So we're actually using less of our brain in flow. We get energy for free. But in order to partake in this wonderfully optimized and catalyzed version of our neurobiology, we need to protect that fourth phase. In other words, recovery. So what do you do to help neuron fatigue? It can be things that will help you dampen your sensory input. For example, earplugs, sunglasses, maybe blue blockers, uh, maybe lying down. What are ways that you downgrade this stimulation? Because we are basically brains on a stick walking around. And if we're always using our brains and we're not giving it time to relax and reset, we're going to burn out. So think about maybe next time staring at a wall, going for a walk. What I do is I change my state all throughout my day. I start to feel my flow getting to a point where I've either been in micro or macro flow, which by definition, micro flow can be as short as a few minutes. Macro flow can be 90 minutes at a time. And when I'm feeling that starting to crest, I take an inventory of my body and I either move to a different room. I might uh, do a downward dog. I might go for a walk. I might close my eyes and practice some breath work. But nonetheless, we need to start being cognizant of turning off our brain so that it can relax and rejuvenate. Now let's talk about protecting autonomy. That's crucial in a catalyst culture. Here's some truths for autonomy, right? When you feel out of control in one area, it affects all areas. That is true. And the reverse is true. When you regain control in one area, you feel more in control in other areas. Here's an example. In the peak of my burnout, I started painting and drawing. I started running. And as my fourth grade gym teacher would say, that is a miracle because I am not athletic. So if I'm actually leaving the middle of my workday to go for a run, you know, something is going on and something did go on. It was very interesting because I started running more and more and I felt more autonomous. Part of burnout is feeling a lack of autonomy, like everything you do doesn't matter because you have no control. But getting this tiny little element of control back into my day by choosing 
to go out and choosing to run and getting my own autonomy back on a regular basis, it gave me a regular dose of flow. And this is contagious. I brought it back into work. I brought it to my relationships, to my friendships. I started spending my time differently. Autonomy is mislabeled often as bossiness or this authoritarian view. And it's actually not. It's how you're spending your time. That's it. It may not be where you can freely move or go. So we hear this a lot in the peak of burnout for a lot of practitioners is I have no choice, quote unquote. I can't, quote unquote. I'm stuck, quote unquote. But see, it's a choice of how you spend your time. And that can also go into how you spend your emotional time and energy. Time is not limitless. We must decide what is urgent and important and what is worthy of our own energy and brain power. And that is the key to avoiding burnout is finding things that you can control, right? So flow will grow where your attention goes. What are you watering? What are you controlling? And even if you can't control the hours that you start or end your job or the number of patients that you're required to see or the number of papers sitting on your desk or the number of inbox messages that you have to respond to, guess what? Take a deep breath and you can reclaim your emotional autonomy, which is how triggered are you? That's the mark of a flowy catalyst is somebody who isn't led around by their emotions, who isn't reacting to things, but rather proactively grounded. And they're able to elongate that trigger to response time. So I start with looking at my calendar. I have a time wizardry course, which I love because I've used methods that work for me and have worked for a lot of other practitioners and how to carve out more time in your day and make that time very potent. We end up, you know, learning that we tend to multitask, which isn't a very good use of our brain power. So in this course, I help people sequence their day and learn how to be really good at using this potent brain power and flow. And then when something does occur that just doesn't sit right with us, find that purpose in the problem. Everything is an opportunity to learn. And that's how we can regain this emotional autonomy. And process these uncomfortable emotions because that's what's going to happen in life. It's painful. Practice this radical curiosity, asking yourself, why did this happen? What was there earlier signs that I could have noticed? What can I do better? What is this person trying to tell me? What does this patient really want? Have I aligned with their why? Or am I assuming? a narrative and a strategy that might not be something that they're concerned about. And identify areas you have control. And where are you abdicating control? Where are you giving your control up? That's where the emotional autonomy comes in. And it's really powerful. You know, it's just like, like having kids, you know, you give them the keys to the car, they're going to drive you crazy. So when do you need to have control? When don't you need to have control? And then double down on your strengths. We all know our strengths. Are you creative? Are you diligent and responsible? Are you dutiful? Are you loyal? What are your core values? Those are your strengths. Can you do more of what you're good at? 
The third pillar of creating a catalyst culture is limiting those distractions that are taking you away with what you're trying to build, right? We all have the shiny new app syndrome, especially as a medical entrepreneur, when you are brand new building your practice, everything looked like it was something I needed. I would scroll through my social media and go, wow, that class that's going to 10X my income, that sounds like something I need. Or, oh my gosh, do I need to have that person on my team? We end up hiring people to fix pain before we have a clear idea of what pain are we experiencing. We need to be absolutely radically clear. Then we have wandering schedules and tasks. And I did this all the time before I got crystal clear on how to manage a calendar, how to do time blocking, how to understand flow. I was at the beck and call and whim of reacting to how my day unfolded. I never would plan how to place each hour of my day. In fact, I thought that was more restricting until I figured out that's exactly the container that flow needs. You need to have clear outlines of when your start and stop times are and where you're going to put your energy. And then you effortlessly dip right into flow and it becomes faster and faster. You recover faster, you flow faster. And it's a wonderful dance in your brain of neurochemicals that are helping you achieve every task you have on your planning. So to solve these distractions, I recommend revisiting your clear goals often. I do this first yearly, then I chunk it out to quarterly goals, and then monthly, and then weekly, and daily. And even daily, at the end of the day, I look and and reflect, were these goals accurate? Maybe I can add a few more tomorrow or take some away that aren't aligned. You'd be surprised how fast your week can progress, or also how quickly your week can crumble if you haven't been revisiting your goals. So I have a date with myself. I recommend everybody dating themselves. What matters to you? Where do you want to go? Even if you don't have an idea, you do have an idea. Make a list of top three things you'd like to accomplish this week, even if it's self-care. Just self-care, that's even better. Do you want to pick up that jump rope again? Okay, maybe it's just me. Do you want to enjoy the outdoor sun now that we finally have vitamin D in Wisconsin? What are the most important things to you? And when you start to feel itchy, that could be dopamine. We're very, very dopamine driven. And that's because we're human. Our brain is a predictive machine. It loves to be right. It loves to find novelty. And dopamine feels good. And dopamine's great when you learn how to harness the power correctly. But when you're feeling itchy and distracted and you want to start scrolling on your phone, create your own rule book. If I start feeling restless, then I will. And take something from my playbook, go for a walk, change your state, journal, draw, doodle, do something that helps you get back on track. When you start infusing a lot of this culture in your communications that you prioritize your flow, that you prioritize autonomy, don't be surprised when everybody falls in line because it's contagious. You'll immediately attract people that agree, but also people that don't respect those kinds of boundaries will be a little less likely to want to engage. And that's because we get used to how we feel. Hedonic adaptation, right? Pleasure feels good, but it's also temporary. Pain is also temporary. 
And the mark of a mature, self-actualized person is realizing that everything is temporary. And when they can sit in that discomfort, that's where the power lies. That's the emotional autonomy. And when you invite this uncomfortableness in and you realize that's just part of normal life, then you become the extreme catalyst. You understand this is what's keeping us alive evolutionarily. We get used to a certain set point of comfort. So pushing yourself a little bit out of that comfort zone, that's the beginning of a flow cycle. That's that struggle feeling where you're starting to push the envelope a bit. And that's necessary for growth. Overwhelm is going to happen. When we feel overwhelmed, it's from two things. Pressure and noise. This comes from Alex Charfin's podcast, The Momentum Podcast. And I love his equation. His equation is overwhelm equals pressure plus noise. And if you're doing life right, your pressure is going to increase. You're going to get older, have more responsibilities. Maybe you now have a family. Maybe you're caring for others. Now you have a community. Maybe you own a business. Maybe you have a patient panel of 1,200. So the pressure is guaranteed to increase. So unless you decrease the noise in your life to offset that, you will feel overwhelmed. So controlling that noise, being vigilant. How are you adding to your own noise? Can you decrease it? Both in sensation, but also in energy. And think about how we can do this for our patients, right? Patients also have their own pressure and noise. And this is why I love helping people learn how to run their own membership practice in holistic and functional medicine. It helps decrease that pressure that patients feel. They want to feel better fast. They may have had their symptoms for decades and they're finally sick of it and they want help. So they've unfortunately taken that same pattern and filter that we have in our conventional model of medicine as the visit tit for tat, fee for service, and applied it to holistic or functional medicine. It doesn't work. You don't get better just because you visited me for an hour. That's not how it works. It's a slow cook method. We need to honor the space and timeline it may take for our body to heal. Some are faster than others. And life happens. You get taken for a whirl when maybe something happens in your life that causes an emotional upset. And then, you know, maybe your patient is struggling. And this is why membership is great because they're paying monthly. And you're there with them, helping them offload that pressure to heal fast because you give them time and attention. And that helps the noise. Group visits also decrease that noise on your part too. You won't have excess portal messages to answer every day. It becomes a streamlined flow channeled process. You're able to use tiny moments to catalyze great change. For example, if a patient asks a great question in the portal, you can say, that is fantastic. Let me answer this in our group visit on Thursday. I call my group visits open office hours. And I do this intentionally because it's quite different than group visits in a conventional setting. Open office hours is termed like an academic institution because that's what I want my patients to feel, that they're learning about their body in deeper ways. And they're responsible for their learning. So they can show up at open office hours if they want the answer, if they really want to dive deeper. As I've, I've infused my culture with these terminologies and language, 
it just exponentially grows. And my portal messages decrease because patients understand that they'll get a better answer if they show up at my open office hours. We'll have a private Q&A, we'll have an educational lesson, and it's a great use of both of our time. Now, how do we inspire patient commitment in this culture? First, we have to understand no patient is going to understand as much as we do. We've got the expertise. We've been through all the training. We've gotten the certifications. We've attended all the seminars. We live and breathe medicine. But how we must also remember is that we cannot possibly understand their daily life. We've not lived in their body. We have not had their frustrations. We can't possibly know what it's like to have their childhood or adulthood history. So we can infuse incentives, which can be very creative and fun. I love offering my patients um, a raffle every so often. And I also take attendance. I like to have incentives that aim for predictable outcomes, like data or clarity or attendance versus symptoms or MSQ, which is the ratings that we use in functional medicine on how your symptoms stack up. So helping patients stay invested in their health goes a better, longer way if we can use concrete data. And I reflect sometimes on their journey when they feel hopeless and they feel like, oh, I'm not getting answers. I tell them we are. Look at all the things we've learned about you. We've learned that you don't have mold or mycotoxin. We've learned that low-dose naltrexone did not help your Hashimoto's, but we also learned that you had candida overgrowth and we're learning to help you replenish a healthier gut bacteria. So although you might not be 100% totally uh, cured, you're noticing small incremental improvements. When I offer them a prize for best attendance, then that feels really good because that's creating this culture of knowledge, of presence and commitment that happens in the catalyst culture. And lastly, our brains love compliments. We like congruence more than being right. Feels good. So this is why group visits are awesome. You see, in a group visit, we're able to help people understand and dive in a bit deeper while they allow peer-to-peer support. In a group visit, they're able to support each other, and that feels good. They're congruent. They're able to give each other feedback. And I'm able to highlight, look, you're doing so well. And they can see with pride how much that they've improved. In a Duke University study, they showed that a pizza voucher given to employees wasn't as good as just public compliments. So it's important to acknowledge the humanistic drive to be healthy and improve. And when you do that amongst your peers, you can do this without breaking HIPAA. You can do this in a very heart-centered format where we come together and we share celebrations. When you align the mission and go back to that patient's why, why do they want to get better? That helps them buy into your catalyst culture immediately. Culture is truly your secret weapon. And here are the steps to create the catalyst culture. Core values will drive your decisions, which sets your culture. So if you haven't gone back and really thought about your core values, I suggest you do so. You can do this right now. 
taking out a piece of paper, thinking about a person you admire greatly and writing down 25 adjectives that describe that person. That's likely your culture right there, your core values that will determine your behavior, which will then determine culture. Likewise, culture determines behavior, which will determine results. So this is a very large area that has a large overlap. When you have an identified strong culture, it will increase your net worth 750%. And it's what we do. It's learned from induction. People are observing. There's patterns of behavior and internal mental theory that may never even go spoken or announced, but it's felt. And that's what keeps people wanting to work with you. For example, you can have expectations that say, I honor work-life balance and I promote rest and relaxation because we live in a sympathetic society. But if you constantly respond to messages right away, even at 10 p.m. at night, or conversely, if you're late or you don't respond, you're telling them that your communication priorities are not what you actually have said. So make sure your behavior is aligning with your expectations. Because that cultural set point can creep. It can kind of drop lower and lower. We've all been in occupations like that where the department has certain values that they have said, but you know how it really is. There's a lot of gossip or back talk, and that does not bode well for having a catalyst culture. How you raise your culture set point. Look at the small signals first. What micro signaling are you setting out, right? Those are things like what you might encourage and what you tolerate. Things like email conversations, portal messages. If your door is closed and you have a sign on there that says, please do not disturb until 3 p.m., but you have a staff member that comes and knocks all the time and you still let the door open, well, you're encouraging that. So you're not fortifying your own boundaries. If you say you're going to show up at 2 p.m., but you're chronically appearing at 2.05, well, then how can you expect the reciprocal to happen when you're not honoring that person's time? And then look at the macro signaling, the big signs that you're showing, right? These are high decisions. If you say, I really only want to serve Women between the ages of 35 to 55 who are hormonally imbalanced, having tremendous hot flashes or perhaps infertility. And then you're also in your messaging trying to attract men or teens, college students. You've got things all over social media. That's not very clear. You need to make these costly decisions to 80-20 everything. Make it crystal clear who you're serving. And then how strong is this signal in your culture? Does your website match your social media? Do all of your team members say the same thing? Do you have a common language? Do they know your core values? Are you positively polarized? Now, we're not talking black and white rigid thinking. We all know one of the things I dislike the most about social media in the wellness industry is how people do not allow a yes and approach that you can have differences of opinion and you can be strong in your own opinions without bashing others. That, that's just not helpful and it's not full of integrity. It's not my core value to talk 
negatively about another practitioner just because they might have a different medical opinion. So you can be positively polarizing. It becomes intoxicating when you are so grounded in your core values that you don't feel the need to show any kind of hatred or um, injustice towards someone else. As you drumbeat this in, you're using your labeling, your naming, your repetition. That is how you are flying your flag of catalyst culture. You're so sure, you're grounded, you're solid in what you stand for. There's no need, no need to bash others. You have a common language, you understand your core values, and it becomes just irresistible. So here's some examples. There's scripts here that show examples of how you can understand the core of the culture just in the messaging. Here's the first quote. We pride ourselves in creating family-friendly meal plans. Right there, I can understand that they're very proud. They've worked hard. It's family-friendly. And obviously, this business is about planning and making eating a lot easier and healthier. Here's a second example. Our motto is, everyone deserves a break. So thank you for honoring our work-life boundaries. Messages are triaged according to medical need and may not be answered within 48 to 72 hours. That's super clear. I understand. They respect my time. They want me to understand when I'm going to get a response. And they also respect that people deserve a break. And they have supported me. They're going to triage according to medical need. And lastly, here's another example. In this clinic, we believe no one is left behind. So we give extra attention to education in our group visits. How wonderful. This makes me feel safe and supported. They don't want me to be left with confusion or lack of resources. So I'm more likely to learn in the group visit. Here are the 12 catalyst culture characteristics. Let's talk about this. Number one, autonomy ownership. What I mean by that is radical ownership of your autonomy. That means owning everything, your strengths, your weaknesses, and your mistakes. Owning that you have a choice in your next steps, in the next hour that you spend, and also in the emotions that you're feeling. Owning that you can feel these emotions and you're learning tools to process them in a healthy way. Number two, a catalyst culture has clear goals revisited often. So daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly. Catalysts know with clarity, what are their big three that they want to do today? What are their big three for the week? How has that changed? Catalysts aren't rigid, but they're always trimming those trees of that bonsai tree. And they're always watering every day, looking at the soil, looking at the seeds and the branches and the leaves, tending to this growth. Number three, a preference for asynchrony. A catalyst culture knows that we don't need to have live one-on-one -on -one time with our patients in order to help them heal. There's many things that can be done asynchronously. We can let our patients book their own appointments after hours with an online scheduling system. We can record videos of their lab interpretation so they can watch it over and over and really understand what that means. We can record educational videos that walk them through certain processes and protocols. That is how our patients learn best is when they're feeling safe 
and they're able to digest this information, everybody learns differently. Maybe they'll watch it on 2x speed, or maybe they'll watch it several times and take notes. But asynchrony is our best strategy. Number four, frequent feedback. Say that five times fast. I love alliteration. So a catalyst culture has frequent feedback because we understand that feedback is a gift. It's not a right, but we ask for this gift over and over. We want to hear, how are we doing? We offer feedback to ourselves. And that's what is behind the time calendar wizardry course, right? You look back and see, what did I do well? What could I have done better? Feeding yourself with this expectation and reflection. And we ask from our patients the same thing. What's working well? What isn't? So we can change faster with tiny little changes rather than wait for our annual review. Number five, integrity in all communication. Direct communication, clear and filled with integrity. We say what we're going to do and we do what we're going to say. Number six, dopamine cadence. That comes from understanding flow. That comes from understanding those four cycles, the four phases of that flow cycle and inherently using our dopamine wisely with a predictable cadence that works for us. Number seven, aiming for lowest cognitive load. In other words, try not to use your brain for things that you don't really need to. This is why I rely heavily on things like Trello to organize my ideas and communicate with my virtual assistant. I rely on my Google calendar and tasks and reminders. I don't want to have to keep all of that in my brain's office. I want to offload as much as possible so I can save my energy for what matters most. Number eight, efficient operations. Always looking for how can you do this more efficiently? Can you repurpose this? Can you template it? Can you put it into a dot phrase or a text expander so that you don't have to type this out again next time? That is how a catalyst gets faster and more optimized. Number nine, burnout mitigation. Always looking for signs of burnout. When you detect them, you take appropriate actions. You're looking with awareness and curiosity how you can best fortify yourself against burnout. Number 10, strengths focused. We look at what we're good at and we keep getting better. Yes, you want to look at your weaknesses and maybe train up a few, but really you're going to get more out of it if you are super strong. If you're a great audio and visual uh, communicator, you're really lively on video, then really lean into that. Consider videoing more educational courses for your patients. If you are really thoughtful in writing and you love the written word, consider more blogs. Lean into your strengths. Number 11, a catalyst culture has ego dissolution. In other words, it's not all about us. It's not all about them. We're all the same. Our egos dissolve. When you're in flow, your ego dissolves, but I think a catalyst culture helps everybody see that we're all in this together, that there is not one ego that is more important than the other. And finally, the 12th principle of a catalyst culture is psychological safety. There's great importance to creating a safe culture of equality, of inviting all of us to have a seat at the table, of tending 
to possible traumas and recognizing the importance of parasympathetic and vagal toning exercises, letting us get a place to let our hair down and be vulnerable and support everyone in their own timeline of journeying and healing. And those are the 12 catalyst culture characteristics. I would love for you right now to think, here's some doodle time. Get a piece of paper and a pen and think, well, what do you do well in setting your own catalyst culture? Out of those 12 characteristics, did any of them identify in your heart as, wow, I'm already doing that. Go me. I'm a catalyst. Or maybe some of them could use some work. Were there any that really shocked you that you'd never thought of before? Write them down. Write them down and tell me. Drop me a line. I'd love to hear what resonated with you and how you are intentionally building your own catalyst culture so that you can paint your ideal work-life masterpiece. Until next time, thanks for listening.